0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. My name is David. I'm pastor for Creative Arts here at Grace Community Church. I have the privilege of preaching this morning as Pastor Brad, our, our teaching pastor, is Uh, participating in a service honoring the ministry of George Wright up in the mountains this morning. Last Sunday, Pastor Brad finished the series that he and Pastor Ricky were co-teaching on the book of Titus. So this morning's sermon will stand alone, as it were. Uh, It's a sermon I intended to preach back in the summer, but we've had a pretty tumultuous six months in our family, and so this got postponed. So last Sunday night, uh, some of you were here. And we spent some time in the Grace Matters panel, uh, challenging assumptions and examining prevailing narratives. The podcast for this will get edited uh, this week. So Pastor Rick from Anthem Church and Pastor Edward from Newbreed Church uh, shared insight into the various narratives that our churches are facing in the Harnett-Wake-Johnson County Metroplex. We actually did talk specifically about some suburban Problems too, how we all roll up into our garages and shut the door, and that's the end of our day. And we highlighted the fact that the gospel is still the only transformative power to reconcile racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, or generational tribalism. So we heard the fact that there are narratives that people live into. And this is one of my favorite concepts to chew on. Uh, one philosopher, Charles Taylor, has used this phrase, social imaginary, to describe uh, the stories and narratives that operate in the background of our minds, in the imagination. And they're shared by a bunch of people in a culture. And so it's social, a social imaginary. In contrast, in many ways, is a, is a biblical imaginary. A specifically Christian way of telling the story of the world. Of painting the picture of the good life. And realizing what's actually true about reality. In so many cases, our culture uh, is, is giving us a story. It's selling it to us and we're, we're buying it. And it's not consistent though with how the biblical account might be. Of how the world works or what it means to be human. So when we allow our fingers to keep scrolling or the radio or the TV to keep on playing or some other algorithm-based media tool to tell us how the world is, how the world works, how the world should be, at some level, we are absorbing this information. At some level, even if we're intentionally trying not to absorb it as we renew our minds and try to think on the good and the beautiful and the trustworthy things, we're still swimming in the narrative. We're marinating in it. Hopefully we're not the frog slowly being boiled, but these metaphors don't come from nowhere. So I didn't intend didn't to get this sober this early on in the sermon, but we cannot be transformed apart from our fellowship with the Holy Spirit and Christ among God's people. And we will not combat the narratives of the world, the flesh, and the enemy Apart from regularly remembering rightly how the world really works. That's why we sing songs on Sunday, songs that hopefully ring in your ears throughout the week, reminding you of true things when untrue things are more clickworthy. That's why we pray and read Scripture publicly and encourage you to pray and read throughout the week. Can you even imagine if you prayed and read Scripture? as much as you read your email, Facebook, Twitter, Insta, Snap. Actually, you could probably look at your screen time app on your iPhone and know exactly how many hours this week you marinated in stories that may not be true. How does that compare to the time you marinated in and feasted on the Word of God? The fact is, we need reminders. Constant Reminders, I have to constantly remind my kids to brush their teeth, and it's exhausting. I never have to remind them to leave clothes on the floor or eat all the candy or argue. They remember that instinctively, but they seem to have problems remembering to put on socks when it's 40 degrees or taking a shower after playing a soccer game and you stink, and I tried to use the analogy the other day. Uh, I feel like a broken record with my 10-year-old And the blank look that he gave me is one I do not want to see again. And I have a vinyl player in my office. But we all need reminders. God knows this. That's why he gave us his word. And specifically, that's why he gives us texts like Psalm 107. So in this chapter, the psalmist is leading worship, as it were. He's giving instructions to the congregation. But the instructions aren't just, brush your teeth. They are, brush your teeth, because remember how the dentist didn't pull any teeth last time? This psalm is instructing, give thanks to the Lord because he's good, and he is good in these ways. God is faithfully telling of his faithfulness. So would you stand with me as we read Psalm 107? I'm going to read the whole thing at a pretty good pace, I think. So feel free to sit if you're uncomfortable at any point. And if you're looking at your own copy of the Bible, you will see LORD in all caps. So I'm going to read Yahweh when we see that. That's God's covenant name. And when that happens in the text, then you'll see that on the screen too. This is Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then... They cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction, They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of Yahweh, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to Yahweh and their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress." He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste, because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply, multiply greatly. He does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of Yahweh. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This psalm is a great way to set our eyes on Thanksgiving. Not Christmas yet, folks. Thanksgiving. I'm thinking about that house right on Fifty Five coming into Andrew. And Spurgeon himself uh, called this psalm one of thanksgiving. I mean, it's the opening command. In verses one through three, we're introduced right in the beginning to uh, this people group, the redeemed of the Lord, and God's steadfast love, loyal love, or chesed. Some of you want to say that with me, and so I'm going to give you that freedom right now. Let's say chesed together. One, two, three. Chesed. If you've been here for a bit, you've heard me talk about chesed before. Uh, it's one of my favorite words in scripture, in part because it's too difficult to define. It's one of these words in Hebrew that has a tremendous range of meaning. It doesn't really translate well into English for, for many reasons. So chesed can be translated mercy, love, steadfast love, loving kindness, loyal love, covenant love, and about 15 to 20 more things, depending on the context and what other words are being paired with it. The chesed of Yahweh is a theme throughout this psalm, introduced here right at the beginning as the reason for praise, and then it's defined and explained throughout the course of the psalm. And then in the conclusion, uh, we're told that it's the wise who consider chesed. And that's actually one of the amazing things about this psalm is as we read through these examples of god's faithful love his steadfast love it was defined by action god was and is up to something so verses one through three show us something else that we talked about last sunday night actually that god is gathering a people from all lands he's calling us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son And though we were once not a people, now we are a people. We're his people. And something that's fascinating in this psalm as well is the psalmist doesn't identify the people group of Israel as those called out. The psalmist identifies those who cry out to Yahweh as the ones who belong to him. And that's a a foreshadowing of the global scope of the gospel. Because no one is excluded by virtue of where they are, what tribe they belong to, what ethnicity or culture they're part of, or what race their skin color may be linked to. The only factor that this psalmist identifies is that God's people cry out to him and their need, and he responds. So you may have noticed a structure that showed up in the psalm as we read through it. That's one of the reasons that I love it. It feels liturgical, like a good congregational song with four verses and a refrain and even kind of a bridge. So there's four circumstances that are described. And then those circumstances culminate in a cry to Yahweh for his help. And in his faithfulness, he answers. These four circumstances that we see in the psalm, they could be literal, they could be figurative, and you guessed it, they're both. They apply directly to the experience of the people of Israel and they directly apply to us generations later. Two of these circumstances, or the verses of the song, as it were, are linked to circumstances that God has allowed. And two are circumstances brought about as the consequence of sin. But in all circumstances, though, God responds to those who cry to him. So the first circumstances in verses four through nine, being lost, plagued by hunger and thirst. Perhaps you've noticed a hunger and thirst is a common metaphor in Scripture. Hunger and thirst affect the soul, and vice versa. Our, our souls affect our hungers and thirsts. I mean, this is in part why the church historically has participated in, in food banks and exercising care for the poor in their communities and providing for orphans and widows, because historically, those are often the hungry and thirsty in a culture. In our community, we practice things like the toiletry pantry, providing simple supplies for the physical well being of folks who need it. Because those in places of hunger and thirst are ready to hear good news. If you're hungry because you've missed meals or because of limited resources, you've probably been hearing terrible news pretty consistently. You're ready for good news. In contrast, Those in places of abundance may already be living the good life. Maybe folks with abundant resources have bought the narrative, believing in their heart that the stuff we have now is all there is, so may as well have a lot and enjoy it. And if life is already even pretty good for us, it's harder to hear the good news. Jesus mentioned this with the old camel illustration. Go camels, by the way. They showed it well against Duke. So those who are ready to cry out to Yahweh are the ones who realize that true satisfaction comes from Yahweh. Deep, lasting contentment only comes from being filled with the good things that Yahweh provides. That's what the psalm reminds us. Then in verses 10 through 16, we move from the desert to the prison. Both places that one might be tempted to think God's not there. He's not at work in those places. And this circumstance is one, of the, one in which the prisoners have made choices and now are suffering the consequences of those choices. That's a reminder, sin has consequences. You may think it's hidden or compartmentalized or not that bad, but you may be imprisoning yourself with such thinking. And God will allow us to suffer the consequences of our unrepentant sin. Imprisonment in this psalm is connected to rebelling against the word of Yahweh. If we don't follow his commandments or heed his instruction, what might we expect, right? So many of us are middle-class American males. Do I really need to give you an example of trying to do something without heeding the instructions? I'm not as bad as some of y'all, but if it's a video game or backing up my iPhone to transfer it, I don't need instructions. But... This mentality affects us way more thoroughly if we're not careful. God is the one who designed everything so he knows how things are supposed to work. And if we refuse to heed what he's given us, we are certainly imprisoned, at least in our ignorance, at worst, in actual bondage of some kind. But for those who cry out to Yahweh, he is unstoppable. The psalmist describes all types of imprisonment materials and none can stand against him. If you are bound by sin of any kind or you are literally imprisoned in in a closed country around the world, cry to Yahweh. He will answer you. He will keep his promises. He will show his loyal love, his chesed to those who cry to him. Nothing can separate you from his love for you. No prison, even of your own making. Then in verses 17 through 22, we find another circumstance that's more directly and even overtly connected to the consequences of sin. These sins are less about ignoring what God's taught or rebelling against him and more about willful, purposeful disobedience. All of us have done this. I've said before that having children or spending time with children, even 30 seconds, will teach you more about your own willful disobedience than you'd ever want to know. In fact, this phrase about loathing food made me think of willful disobedience in children. Because some days, our daughter, Rosie, who turns three this week, she acts like she loathes any kind of food. But for her, only diagnosed type 1 diabetes, this would literally draw her near the gates of death if her blood sugar plummeted from not eating. So today is actually World Diabetes Awareness Day. So I'm wearing blue. Uh, And I've preached on Batman Day too, so this is interesting. But three weeks ago, I never would have known about the millions of people, including Rosie, who live with type 1 diabetes. At least two others in our congregation, and probably a few more with type 2. The main difference is that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease in which her little body has fought her own pancreas. So now, me and Sarah get to be her pancreas until she is old enough to calculate the insulin she needs on her own for the rest of her life. So you better believe we have cried to Yahweh the last three weeks. And although we don't feel completely delivered from our distress, we have survived. Rosie is happy and she is adapting. We've had meals provided when we're too exhausted and overwhelmed to cook. We've had encouraging notes and texts and conversations to sustain us. And Yahweh, in his steadfast, loyal love, has walked with us as we take each day one at a time. This section ends with the command to give sacrifices of thanksgiving with songs of joy. And in two weeks, we actually have a chance to offer sacrifices of Thanksgiving, even as Thanksgiving for us is the anniversary of the passing of Sarah's beloved grandmother. And then two weeks ago, we actually had the chance to record songs of joy with the creative arts team to tell of Yahweh's deeds. So this last circumstance in verses 23 through 32, it's, it's another common biblical motif of life on the sea. The ocean Inspires awe in its power and its enormity. Sometimes your three hour tour goes exactly as planned and you see the beauty of creation. And other times your three hour tour may inspire awe as the storm and waves rise and it becomes larger than you thought possible outside of some blockbuster movie. The ocean is often a metaphor for chaos and uncertainty in the Bible. Have any of you felt captured in the tumult of uncertainty in our cultural moment? Have you felt that we are only one step away from chaos in society or in our families or even in our own homes? Then cry out to Yahweh. He has demonstrated faithfully that he can still the storm. He can calm the chaos and bring it into order. When the storm is stilled, then you better praise him publicly Let the congregation know how to celebrate with you. Sing it loud when you gather on Sundays. This command, straight from the psalm, can be observed when we gather in home groups, uh, when we use faith life, any other types of social media. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so. In this next section of verses, 33 through 38, they describe the deeds of God and it blurs the lines between metaphor and literal power because indeed it's, it's both. It's love in action. God may choose to lay waste to the lands of the evil or he may allow them to stand until he returns. He may change places of scarcity into places of abundance for his people now or wait until he returns. These verses remind us that God is very concerned with our bodies and our work in the world, both now and glorified soon. God doesn't desire for us to live disembodied existence with a dismissive attitude towards the earth. Rather, it's by his blessing, vineyards and farms bear fruit, livestock multiply. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he allows us to be stewards until he comes to make all things new. I love how this psalm ends. As we have praised the deeds of Yahweh, we're now reminded of his actions on behalf of the oppressed, the afflicted. Verses 39 through 42 tells us that when the hungry who have cried out to Yahweh are diminished or marginalized through evil or oppression or sorrow, he knows. He knows and is listening. Anyone can cry out to Yahweh from wherever they are, from the desert to the ocean depths, from prison or a room full of seemingly happy people. And God will pour contempt on all those who rule with oppression. All wickedness shuts its mouth when God raises up the needy out of affliction. This is God's loyal love in action. Raising, blessing, protecting, and saving. There's still a tension, though, of knowing when God will do what God does. We don't often know when healing will come or when we'll recognize the deeds of the Lord or his work. And you may have already learned that hindsight is 20-20. And this is usually appropriate for also recognizing God's wondrous works. And this closing word in verse 43 is connected to that. It reminds us that wisdom is found in considering the law and the loyal covenant love of Yahweh. Considering the steadfast love, the chesed of God, as a task for the wise. So if you want to be wise, then consider the powerful covenant love of Yahweh. Meditate on it. Drink it in. Experience it. Reflect on it. Practice it. In your relationships with the covenant people of God, with your family, and with any who cry out to Yahweh. So this leads me to the four key points to respond to this psalm as God is telling us of his faithfulness. First, remember his story or history, right? It is the true story of the world. The story that God is telling us is the true story of the world. And this psalm illustrates this perspective, a telling of events that acknowledges the unseen hand of God. Because remember, God is the active agent in his story. God is the active agent in all of history. And Yahweh God is faithful to keep his promises. He promised to provide a way for us to be redeemed. He promised within moments of the first sin, and he's been keeping that promise ever since. He foreshadowed it in countless ways throughout the history of God's people. He accomplished that redemption in Jesus, and he will finally accomplish full redemption of all creation when Jesus returns. From the four examples of our psalm text today, remember that Jesus, the true hero of the story, He went out to the desert to fast and pray, and he battled the enemy himself and won, sustained by the word of God. Remember that Jesus was bound and led to death in our place, and death's chains could not hold him. Remember that Jesus was sleeping sound in the boat as chaos ensued, and he merely spoke and the wind and waves obeyed. Remember that Jesus has suffered in every way that we might suffer. He was unjustly accused, afflicted, and oppressed by those seemingly in power over him. And he endured all of it, saying, Father, forgive them. Because Jesus was faithful even to death, and because his death in our place satisfied God's wrath, God raised up his son to prove his power over sin and death. Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. As it was in the beginning, so it shall be in the end. Let this story, his story, capture your imagination every day. And then remember your story, because your story is a part of his story. Have you received mercy? Have you experienced grace? Have you known the steadfast love of Yahweh? Then remember, remember your identity as a follower of Jesus, the redeemed of the Lord, the redeemed of Yahweh. So your story is not the Odyssey or the hero's journey. It's woven into a much larger story that God is telling about his purposes for the world, which is no less than his purpose for you, but it's so much more. So tell your story. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Have you extended mercy? Have you given grace? Have you acted out of covenant love towards your spouse, family, friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ? And are you ready for opportunities to tell your story? How about when God's people gather, when we're fellowshipping together? Uh, or when we're scattered throughout the week? Uh, do you consider every day how you might make the most of the time that you've been given? Because here's the thing. You can tell your story in little moments, in conversations, or in long-term relationships of patient love. And none of these opportunities is greater or less than the other So, moments, conversations, long term relationships, none of these is greater or less than the other because they're all a part of his story. Because even in these moments or conversations or relationships, God is the active agent through the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. So, tell his story. Remember his story, remember your story. And then tell your story and tell his story because your story is part of his story. So you must tell faithful history. Revelation 12, the conclusion of the story, if you will, reminds us that we shall overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So we here is the redeemed of the Lord. So let the redeemed of Yahweh say so. Let us tell of the wondrous works of God, his work in Christ, his coming kingdom, because we've been redeemed from death, both now and eternally. We've been redeemed from loneliness, both now and forever. Psalm 107 reminds us that God is a faithful redeemer, and he is showing us chesed. God is faithfully telling his story, so let us remember rightly and participate with him in telling his story. Would you pray with me? God, we desire to tell your story faithfully. And so we thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is a living and active testimony of your goodness and your chesed. May we respond uh, to your goodness, in little moments that we might have, in conversations that you provide opportunities for, and in our relationships with our family and our friends and our coworkers, may we tell faithfully what you have done faithfully for us. I in Jesus, uh, the Redeemer's name that we pray.